This is quite a sight for a little country preacher. The only time I've been in this building was nearly 23 years ago when my oldest son married Amy Beery, right down front here. Thank you for giving us one of your treasures. A godly daughter-in-law. Thank you. I greet you in Jesus' name from northern Minnesota, and it's good to be here. A little intimidating. We're not used to nearly so many people, but uh, I hope to learn to know a few more of you as the time goes on. More than 20 years ago, my wife and I attended a funeral in Minnesota held in a Lutheran church, officiated by the reverend, pastor, whatever his proper title is. I forget the details of why, but there was also a Baptist minister there, I think because of the deceased family connections. Both men would preach a short message. And while, when the Baptist man arose, he presented a salvation message. He talked about Jesus being the Son of God and living a sinless life. He talked about Jesus being crucified on Golgotha, how he was buried and rose again the third day. He spoke of the absolute need to receive Jesus Christ to, in, in order to become a Christian. When he spoke these things, I found myself, well, praise the Lord, I think there's going to be a gospel message preached here today that if there are any unsaved present, they will get a chance to hear. But my hopes were soon dashed when that minister declared, all you need to do to be born again, to become a Christian, is to give mental assent to the fact that Jesus died and rose again to redeem the sins of mankind. I was dismayed to hear his, his statement, all you need to do is give a mental assent to these historical facts, and that makes you a Christian. I do not believe, according to this book, that that's all you need to do to be saved. I'm glad to hear a few amens. I think more if you weren't so shy would say amen. And uh, the devil and his angels are well aware that Jesus died, was, was on Golgotha, and he rose again to, to their dismay on the third day. James 2.19 says, Thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe, and they tremble. Have you ever asked yourself why they tremble? They know their end. Remember one of them asked Jesus one time, Art thou come to torment us before the time? Remember the unclean, I guess at time, Matthew 8, 29, And behold, they cried out, saying, What are we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? So to teach that all you need to do to be born again is to give some kind of mental assent to some historical facts is to teach another gospel in plain English. It's not the gospel that you men preach and we preach. Here is some of what the Bible teaches on the subject. John the Baptist be preaching in the wilderness of Judea, preached Matthew 3, 2. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, in Matthew 4, 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Acts 2, 37 to 38. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? 
Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You could list more. I have two more here. Paul on Mars Hill, there in Acts 17, 29 to 30, he says, For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold and silver or stone graven by art and man's device. In the times of his ignorance, ignorance God winked at. But now he commandeth all and everywhere to repent. repent. And then near the end of his earthly life, just before he went to Rome, whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not a disobedient to that heavenly vision that God had given him back on the road to Damascus, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. So how did the gospel message pro pro proclaimed by all these men, how is it that there is another gospel preached today where you don't need to repent? Something has been lost, has it not? Another gospel has been invented that does not cross the will of mankind. You don't need to change anything to be saved. We're laying aside a lot of things in this book if we would declare that to someone. You don't need to do much, just, just give a mental assent. I remember in my early married years, I'm married 51 years now, almost my dear wife. I remember hearing a reading, I was reading in some gospel periodical that a well-known national, nationally known Christian, Christian movement that had uh, conventions and so forth that they instructed their counselors, if someone responds to the call to become a Christian, don't bring up repentance. I saw that written down, don't bring up repentance. They said, that's not necessary for salvation. If it comes up later in life, fine, fine and well, but you don't need to talk to them about that in order to be saved. Is there any wonder we have the Christianity, in quote unquote, that we have in America today? Because there's some pretty basic things in this book that have been set aside by the vast majority of professing Christian in this land. I don't believe any church or any church group is immune from this tendency. Just sort of don't talk about the things that, that maybe make some people feel uncomfortable. Or to change the gospel message to, in order to appeal to a broader, broader audience. It doesn't take a divine unction to start watering down the gospel. It takes no act of Congress to have a church leave off applying a certain doctrine or uh, application, the commandment of God. Such commands and such principles can simply be ignored and unless the people in the pew are reading the word of God, those things will sort of fade into oblivion and it just takes 20 or 30 years down the road and they have no idea what the scripture says. That describes many in our nation today. Did Jesus mean what he said? Yes. Absolutely. Does the Lord really want something more from us than simply knowing what is right and wrong? If I was to name a key verse for this assigned topic, I would pick John chapter 13, verse 17. Who can quote that? 
You all hear it at least twice a year. At the end of the feet washing passage, if you know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. It's not a profound, I mean, it's not a uh, complex statement, it's, but it's profound. Jesus taught his disciples there at the Last Supper about the heart and the spirit, feet washing. He taught them by word and example, but the core of that teaching went far deeper than simply washing the dust off each other's feet. There's something profound about the message of Jesus Christ that we make application for today. We do feet washing because we don't want to lose that. We'll get more to that later. I am very appreciative that we make application that Bible principle and that we practice washing feet. It is how we keep close one way and make application through that practice of the ordination of feet washing. It's how we keep close to Jesus' intentions that his followers be people that are servants, first of all. When Jesus said, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them, I thrill when I read uh, that word uh, happy or blessed. That word happy there means to be supremely blessed, blissfully elated. I think it comes out maybe in a clearer way tomorrow night's message. But when you know what God's will is, and you do it with a willing heart, there comes a joy in a person's spirit that can't be touched by anything. Jesus said, if you know these things, that's up here, happy are ye if you do them. Doing them, in Jesus' words, is taking what we have read in the Bible and then making application of it. I am well aware that there are those, perhaps many, who look on our conservative Anabaptist persuasion and who would charge us with being some kind of a cult. That has happened to us. Did it happen down here in the Shenandoah Valley? Uh, who from a critical spirit accuse us of practicing what we do because we're trying to earn our salvation? I heard this some years ago, it's not original with me, but I think it pretty well describes the attitude of some that they run so far and so fast from a salvation by works that they embrace a salvation that requires no works. And uh, I know many who are in that. Some look on us with a sense of pity. Why pity? Because they claim that, well, Bob or John or Frank, whatever your name is, don't you know these aren't salvation issues? How many have had that said to, said to you? Don't you know that that's not a salvation issue? Well, I will assure you tonight that if, if you ask the wrong question, you will never, never, never get the right answer. It'd be far better for the person to say, is that an obedience issue? And then we could say a resounding, yes, it is an obedience issue. It's what God lays out in his word. And we don't do it because it's a salvation issue. We do it because it's an obedience issue. And Jesus said, if you love me, Keep my commandments. One chapter later in John 15, 9 to 10, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If you keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as, even as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. Following our first stint in northwestern Ontario, I was employed at a machine shop. 
The employer was what they called a fundamentalist Christian. I don't know if those terms are still bantied around today or not. About a third of the employees, there were like 36 or 38 of us there, about a third of them professed to be a Christian. I was the only one of Anabaptist persuasion. And when I started working there, I found that that's when they started telling Mennonite jokes. And uh, I wasn't there but a few days, and when I started getting peppered with questions, actually more criticism and judgments about our non-resistance belief and practice. Some also wondered to, allowed to me that they wondered that I could even be a Christian, even claim to be a Christian, because I did not embrace their unconditional eternal security. That's what was in those circles. One day I was working beside Bill. He was attending Lancaster Bible College on his way to becoming a pastor. And uh, we were both working on adjacent surface grinders, and the kind of job we had, it was rather boring. You could do it for 15 minutes without really doing a lot of thinking, so we could responsibly converse while we were working. And Bill started hounding me about my time spent in alternate service in lieu of going into the military, which had been during the Vietnam War. Why did I choose to become a conscientious objector? What is wrong with serving the military, Bob? Don't you know that David in the Old Testament was a man of war? Don't you know Romans 13 says we're to obey the higher powers? You know the arguments. And uh, God's chosen people which were involved in physical conflict and warfare in the Old Testament. So by extension, we should obey our civil leaders and we should go to war if they want us to go to war. Bob, isn't that somewhat cowardly of you to run off to the mission field when your fellow age teenagers are going to Vietnam and dying? So while we were worked, I was able to explain what I understood about uh, our position of non-resistance, why we didn't go to war, why we wouldn't take up a sword, why we wanted to be involved in, in serving the Lord in an acceptable way to the, the government. I quoted Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 43 and 44, where Jesus said, You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, and do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. I spoke of that incident at the Last Supper where, I, when you first started reading that, what was Jesus having, having in mind here when he said, uh, he that hath a purse or money uh, go buy a sword. And later someone said, here are two swords, and he said, that's enough. Now, if we were involved in carnal warfare, I don't think any one of us would have been the ones without the sword. But Jesus said, it's enough. Later, when Peter drew his sword and smote the high priest's servant, Jesus said, Peter, put that sword away. Put it back in his sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? It appears to me that Jesus wanted a sword present that night because he knew how his disciples would use it, and he was going to usher in the fact that this is the way it was back then, but now I say unto you. It was an object lesson. They understood it. Try as I might, Bill was not accepting of my explanation. He kept shaking his head, no, Bob, no, Bob, it's not that way. And uh, whatever I gave for our biblical reason, Bill wasn't having any of it. So I give the Lord the credit for this. I'm not that smart a man. But all of a sudden, a question came in my mind that I turned to Bill and I said, Bill, 
everything I explain about why we don't go to war and why we love our enemies and so forth, you say it doesn't mean anything. So Bill, when Jesus' words, Jesus speaks to you and he says, Bill, love your enemies. How, how do you apply that verse to your life, Bill? Because he is saying it to every person who takes his name, love your enemies. It took Bill just a few seconds and he turned to me and said, I love my enemies with a bullet in the head. I'm not making it up. That was his exact quote. That was quite revealing to me and a learning experience because I realized that it is possible to dismiss, to ridicule, to downplay someone else's application of scripture and never honestly consider what God is saying to me in that scripture. Because he did knock down someone else's thing, what they do to apply scripture, and that becomes my whatever, and I never really take it to my own heart, what, what does God mean that for me? I believe that conversation brought Bill face to face with the fact that he had never sincerely considered how to take that verse. Bill, put your own name in there. Love your enemies. Sadly that there are those within our own circles who have made the application of biblical principles to be unnecessary and something not worthy of our inconvenience or consideration. I don't know what such advocates do with Jesus' clear words, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now if I ask you what did Jesus mean by keep, the word obey would come floating back to me, right? It, excuse me, it includes obedience, but it's far, far more than obeying. That word to keep in the Greek means to guard from loss or injury. If you have something valuable or precious to you in your house or your home or your car or someplace and the house starts burning, you're going to grab it and take it out with it because it's valuable to you. You want to guard it from loss or injury. And Jesus said, keep my commandments. It speaks of a deep heart attitude toward his commandments rather than simply, I got to obey this. It means to cherish it in our hearts and to want to obey it. I wrote down somewhere else here, and I'll say it now and maybe say it again later. The Bible says his commandments are not grievous. Do you know what that word means? They're not heavy to be borne. But the people who argue against applying those scriptures today make it sound like that most drudgery, most drudgerous thing in the world to have to obey it, to have to keep it. I don't consider it a burdensome to follow the Lord. It's a joy. I flew here from Bemidji to Minneapolis to D.C. Dallas on Tuesday. And I'm not that brave a person, but I had been walk, walking one of those moving walkways, and I was well, from here to the back of the church at the end, and here up, up in those short stairs on Concourse C there, here come this plainly dressed girl carrying her, her thing. I've been known to walk up to people that I have no idea who they are. And I, I say, excuse me. I said, I really appreciate seeing a modestly dressed woman in this place. I'd like to know who you are. I did that one time. And the girl said, you've been a guest in our home. And <laughs> <laughs> she was on her way to Maine to help with a, uh, somebody who had a child. And I, I debated turning around and going after her, but she was laying them down and and uh, it looked, would look sort of funny for this old man to go chasing, you know, a couple hundred yards behind her. 
That young lady from every, she wasn't walking, you know, she was walking normally. She was not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. She was not ashamed to be applying God's principles. And I bless her and everyone that is not ashamed to appear in public, modestly dressed. A bit more on that later. Keeping the Lord's commandments is doing what we can do to guard against losing the principle or the command that is taught there. And uh, if our affections are set on things above, then that's what we're going to be thinking about. I don't want to lose that. I don't want to lose that. I'm not going to let that go by the wayside. If our affections are thing, set on things of this earth, then we will probably try to find an excuse to not to do those things anymore. I think the whole insurance business is predicated on being able to hang on to what we have, whatever happens. In my first year of mission work in 1970 at Poplar Hill School, I don't know how many of you remember the name, Irwin Schantz, but uh, the first year I was there, Henry Hostetter, his assistant, flew in from Red Lake, and we had some kind of informal gathering. Hank was out on the, the rocky hillside between the dorm and the school, and we were t sitting around talking, and Henry had a little devotional for us, and there were seven words burned into my memory that Saturday afternoon on the hillside. These are the seven words, to be Christian, to be a Christian is to serve. To be a Christian is to serve. You boil Christianity down in the essence of what Jesus said, to be a Christian is to serve. The natural man wants to be served. The Christian wants to serve the Lord by serving his fellow man. Remember in John, Mark 10, James and John came in with a request. They wanted to be, they wanted to be one sitting here where uh, Brother Keith is, and another one over here, and they wanted to be his right and left hand, and and uh, they wanted to be the ones wielding the power. They wanted to be the ones exercising authority. In Mark 10, verse 42, Jesus called them to him and saith unto them. You know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So there we have a biblical principle. Jesus calls us to serve. You don't have to teach a young child to be selfish, do you? It just sort of comes with the territory, but we need to teach them to serve. And brothers and sisters, young and old, especially those of you young children, I think I could have, I look back now and I think I, I'm not sure why God didn't wait until later in life before he gave more wisdom and understanding. But, you know, there's far more we want to do than simply have our children obey us. There's a bigger picture. We want them to learn to obey us because we want them to learn to obey God and find joy in obeying God, to be a servant of God. You know, all this fighting over toys and I don't want to do the dishes or I don't want to have to go out and throw hay, hay to the cows. They want somebody else to do it. To, 
to go beyond just simply doing what we as parents want them to do, but try to instill them that this is something of a more eternal nature. This is what Jesus Christ wants us to learn, to teach, to, to learn, and we all have things to learn about that. James 1, 19 to 25, I'd like to turn to that. James chapter 1, starting at verse 19. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. And But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass, for he beholdeth himself, goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. It was this and other passages from James that earned, I believe it was Martin Luther's moniker, a right strawy epistle. Well, brethren, let men have their opinions, but may we be of the opinion to hold to what the Bible teaches, to be doers of the word and not hearers only. I find it very sobering. The Bible says if we know, if we are hear the word and not a doer, what are we doing? We're opening up ourselves wide to deception because God did not create the human frame to live with guilt. When there's guilt there, it should move us to repent if it doesn't, it'll move us to hardness or somehow justifying it. This comes in my mind right now. I remember one year sitting with the son of a well-known minister, and he was convicted that what he was doing with a neighbor's wife, he was a single man, it was wrong. He said, I sat out in the woods. He said, I had my revolver loaded, and the hammer pulled back. He said, I had no courage to pull it pull the trigger. He said, pray that I would leave off this thing, this adulterous relationship. A year later, he married her. And his reason was, well, they never really had a marriage anyway. You see what the guilty mind will do? It'll bring us to repentance, or we'll find some way to assuage our conscience and make it so it doesn't seem so bad. That's what James is talking about. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. That doesn't have to be that kind of level of thing. But if we know what God's will is to do, and we find a way to duck it, to ignore it, try to make ourselves too busy to pay attention to it, we enter, we enter the process of deception. Most of so-called Christendom in America push it back against New Testament doctrines about what it means to be child, a child of God. The Sermon on the Mount doctrines have been pushed back. Oh, that's, that's for another dispensation. Why do they say that? Because unless Jesus Christ is inside here, you can't live the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus came to make us new creatures. 
And what he calls us to can only be done if the Spirit of God has taken up residence in here. So if a man hasn't received the Spirit of Christ, if he hasn't repented, and if he hasn't received the Lord, there is no way. It looks impossible. So he said, well, it's for some future dispensation. Our Lord said in Luke 6, 45 to 49, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. Jesus said, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man which built a house and dig deep and laid his foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently against the house, it could not shake it, for it was found upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like the man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently, and it immediately fell, and the ruin of that house was great. It is not just in our day, but it was in Jesus' day, where people would say the right words, Lord, Lord, but don't do the things he said. I had experienced on Tuesday morning, I got down to Minneapolis Airport, and I usually visit one of the little shoe shine shops, and, and uh, got my shoes polished up for another few months or whatever. And a, a delightful black man there uh, was my shoe shiner. And I asked him about his business, and he just won a contract for the next year. And he had authority over the three contract, the three shoe shine booths in Minneapolis Airport. And he had different people working for him. And he said, In fact, at 10 o'clock this morning, there's a 90 year old man coming here. He's one of my best shoe shiners. Well, that's encouraging. He wasn't sitting, just sitting collecting welfare or Social Security. And he was still busy. But then he said something that floored me. He said he'd been married five times. He's fathered 28 children. And suddenly I have no idea what I'm dealing with. And, uh, Lord, what do I say? Well, I said, I've been married to, the one, to one woman for 30, almost 31 years now. And, oh, that's good, that's good, that's good. But a minute before, he was, he was saying, this man is so special and so great. And I don't know, like I said, I don't know what his detail, did he bury five wives, four wives and marry the fifth? I don't know. But some people can talk the talk. And it seemed wherever the conversation went, oh, he, once he realized I was a Christian, then he talked, he talked Christianese. But Jesus said that day, many are going to say to him, Lord, Lord, we've done this and this and this and this. And what's he going to say? I never knew you. That's going to be the most disheartening thing those people have ever heard. I hope none of here are going to be among them. Where we say, Lord, Lord, we've done, we went to conference. We put money in the offering. We served in the mission field. We had cast out some demons. It's going to be a sad thing when Jesus says, I never knew you. Why call me Lord? and do not the things which I say. When you and I read the Bible, it teaches us how we are to think, correct? It teaches us uh, where we have walked in sinful ways. It teaches us how to get back on the right track. It teaches us, gives us instruction in righteousness, how we are to live day by day. Uh, the verses there, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished all the way through. 
to refuse to make application of the scripture, then we will join the ranks of those who call Jesus Lord and not do the things that he says. I'm 72 and I think I have many brothers and sisters here who will look back and think I'm a young squirt. That, uh, that many of you are, I think there's many here that are probably a good bit older than I. But I've already stopped and thought about the things that have changed in America in my 72 years. It's staggering. It's like the frog in the water that gets heated up slowly and slowly and slowly and many people don't even realize what is happening. Sometime, take a half an hour and start listing those things. And all of these things have been, have, are disappearing into the vapor because people refuse to make application of them. Divorce, remarriage. I told you about the man there in the, in the, in the airport terminal where clear principles have been set aside. I just jotted down here Mark Anderson this afternoon, a man who comes up to a local resort uh, with his family at a little cabin there. He buys maple syrup and jam and honey from our stand. And one time it was a rainy Saturday afternoon, he was there and he talked to me quite a length about the fact that he's been involved for 10 or 15 years with six or seven couples down near the cities. That's where he's from in Bible studies, a weekly Bible studies. Now this sounds really, really good. And uh, then he told me that uh, one of the couples back in the late 90s had a, a son or a daughter who came out. Do you know what that means? That they declared that they were either lesbian or sodomite or whatever. And uh, he says, so when, those, when we come across verses dealing with that in our Bible study, we just sort of skip over that part now. This is how it happens, brothers and sisters. And then my daughter, I didn't know this, my daughter told me later, but daddy, do you realize he is also divorced or remarried? So he's conducting Bible studies, but there were probably other verses that were skipped over or explained away. This is how it happens. It's happening in our day and in our time. The abomination of sodomy and its many forms of immorality. The Lord's day and how we use it. There's some principles have been set aside there. The loss of modesty. Justifying heaping up earthly riches for security and comfort. Whatever happened to truth. I was a young married man when I read in a Christian periodical that that's being taught in our universities and colleges that truth is no longer absolute, it's a relative thing. And we are living today with the results of people, a generation and a half or two of people who've accepted that error, that truth is what you want it to be rather than what Almighty God said it is. What has happened to true worship? Letting our yea be yea and nay nay. Clear and not misleading statements. Covetousness. I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to ask for a raise of hand. I'm not going to ask for de any details, but how many in your lifetime have ever heard anyone confess the sin of covetousness? May I see your hands? Put them high. I see four hands. Is that indicative that's all that, that touches our people? I confess when I was given the topic applying biblical principles, it seemed like a very, very broad subject. 
I don't wonder that her brother had the devotions here, wondered which way I was going to go with that. I'm not sure if I'm going the way I was supposed to go or not. <laughs> but we've considered something of applying Christian principles in our personal lives. We, we see the erosion in church and society when those principles are not applied. And we've looked at the deception that comes when we do not make biblical application. And I'm grateful to be part of a church that thinks seriously about how the Lord expects us to make practical application to the principles of his word. I believe I'm speaking to people whose leaders expect and want to make practical application to the word of God. And I'll say to each of you sisters, wherever you're scattered throughout this auditorium, who consciously embrace the New Testament principles of shamefacedness and honesty, I honor you. I thank you. It's a testimony to this world. Sure, if people wonder why you may have that soup strainer on your head, don't ever be ashamed of it. The world needs that kind of godly example, and I commend you for doing that. To each of you, brethren, who fear God and have made it a priority, even more important than your business or your workaday job, to raise your family for God, to teach them the fear and admonition of the Lord, I say thank you and God bless you. Succeeding generations will thank you as well. To every one of you whose chief aim each day is to glorify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, you know, when you wake up in the morning, I don't know how many do what I do, but very often the first prayer of up is, Lord, help me honor your name in some way today. You know what I'm gonna to face today, Lord? I want my conduct, the decisions I make, what I spend my money for, what I look at, whatever, to be honoring to you. And I think it's right we pray that prayer. And to each of you whose deep, deep heart desire and prayer is to honor the Lord, just like Jesus said, I only do and say those things that please my Heavenly Father. If that is your testimony, I say, God bless you, brothers. God bless you, sisters. That is so powerful. That is so needful. To love the Lord Jesus Christ with all our heart, to embrace, his, to embrace his teaching and his commands. We do these things out of love for him because he did so much for us. Now, this next part, maybe I should just throw my notes down here and let Brother Keith take them and run out the back door. I think we are doing many things well as a church. Like Jesus told some men one time, these, you ought to, you shouldn't have stopped doing these, but there are other things that are weighty too that you should be doing. And I think if we're going to be honest, there are some things in, in our life and experience that maybe we are a little like Bill in the machine shop. Uh, we have a flippant answer for it or somehow we've excused it. I'll get to them here in a minute. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 to 21, he said, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Treasures, the Greek says deposit or wealth. Are those words of Jesus just as dynamic and just as powerful and just as gripping as when Jesus said, love your enemies? I find those are searching words, especially in modern America. 
because it is perfectly acceptable in many of our circles for Anabaptists to lay up hundreds of thousands, perhaps more, for maybe possible medical bills, retirement, old age, old AGs, and comfort. 34, five years ago when I lived in Pennsylvania, I used to listen to Larry Burkett on the way home. I have ceased with radio, but I listened to it then. He had some good things to say, but he said that during your working years, you should save up enough money so that when you retire, you're not a financial burden to your children. That is what he taught. Can anybody give me the chapter or verse where it talks about that? Is, is retirement a biblical principle that we should be applying? I'll be the first to admit that people ask me if I'm busy today. I say, yes, I'm busy, but you must understand it doesn't take as much to keep me busy as it did 10 years ago. <laughs> I understand very well this thing of slowing down and the feet hurt, and sometimes you have to get off your feet and you simply can't do what you can do. But this idea of working until you're 65 and kicking back and playing shuffleboard and eat and drink and be merry, somehow I don't think is what Jesus had in mind. So when he said, by the time you retire, you're no financial burden on your children. So that financial retirement, I put that in huge question marks there. For him, he said he needed about $600,000 laid up so that when he retired, he could live off the interest of that. And you must understand, the years he said that, the interest was 8 to 10%. I think it's a fourth of that today, isn't it? Something like that. And uh, I don't know what he would advise now. Brothers and sisters, if I needed to save $600,000 in that economy 30 years ago, so I could retire comfortably, I would not have spent the years we did in mission work, and neither would you have. This American dream is something I'm afraid we have bought too deeply into. When Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth. I think we, need, we should honestly consider personally, and I don't know if there's a place in a corporate level, the churches, how we apply that, it's just as real as Jesus said, love your enemies and do good to them that persecute you. There is little question that when we work hard, spend wisely and avoid costly habits and entertainment, it's easy to understand that we have far more than we need to clothe ourselves and to eat and shelter ourselves, correct? What do we do with our excess? It immediately begs the question, I'm not asking for any kind of response in this, but would you consider yourself as having an excess? Because if the media and the social pressure would have its way, we would, we would, we want and desire and think we need far more things than we will ever need or have money for. So. It's easy to fall into the trap that, well, I, I just need to earn some more. I need to earn a little bit more to have the things that I really want to have. And so I, I really don't have an access. And if we do have more than we need, is it ours to spend on ourselves as we want? I forget the man's name. If I have it right, I think it was from Ohio that 
when we were up in Canada mission work, he, he said a few things that God used to shape my wife and I's attitude toward these things and that and when when an unexpected gift comes in, we regularly say, Lord, what do you want us to do with this? We say it belongs to him, right? I I hope we we act on that, we apply that. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church about them giving a financial gift to help the poor believers, I think it was in Jerusalem. He wrote in 2 Corinthians 8, 12 to 15, For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. For I mean not that other men be eased and ye burdened, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want. And that their abundance, sometime else, will be, may also be a supply for your want, that there may be equality. As, is, as it is written, he that had gathered much had nothing over, and he that gathered little had no lack. There's a clear biblical principle given here about when we have an abundance, what will we do about it? Can I be a little vulnerable here tonight? I worked in a tool and die shop, and we worked with some extremely tight tolerances, sometimes 30, 40 millionths of an inch. And I also hunt deer. I spent a few days each fall shooting our venison, and we live on red meat. I had a dream one time of taking my two sons out elk hunting. It never happened. I'm not saying it'd been wrong if it did happen, but it just never worked out, and it seems the prices is Things have gone up and up and up. But where those two worlds meet, there are things that just fascinate me. Being a machinist and grinding and shaping metal, the fact that you could take a hunk of lead and throw it a thousand yards and hit your deer fascinates me. But those rifles cost eight to 10 grand and scopes half to two-thirds of that much. And as much as that, it would be really neat to have one of those, then I'd have to take trips to use it, right? And, uh, and I'm not saying if you have one of those, I'm not passing judgment on you, but God said, Bob, that's not for you. There are other needs for your excess. You let God speak to your, your hearts about those things. The last area is a very heavy one. Paul wrote to the Ephesian church in chapter 5, verse 3. He said, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be three times named among you as become as saints. I see some people shaking their heads and smiling. What does it say? It's not to be one time named among us as professing believers as become the saints. What do we do with that Bible teaching? How do we make application of that in our lives? Unfortunately, those kind of things are named among us and more than once. Does it alarm you as it alarms me? 
I remember we had moved from a church in Pennsylvania 31 years ago out to northern Minnesota. And a man there who we fellowshiped with, he wore a plain suit, he had a black hat, wore a mustache, I mean a beard, full beard. Very successful businessman. He had thoughtful things to say in the Sunday school class. He started inappropriate touching of a, when, one year he became a school principal there at the church school and inappropriately touching a girl and he was immensely tried to get help for him and he was not amenable to be helped and he finally left the church and went to another church. And that church did jail ministry in, in Lancaster County Jail, Lancaster. And that man went along and helped do jail ministry. And one Sunday afternoon, one of the prisoners, the ladies in the back, told her guard, something is wrong here. She said, I've serviced that man many times, hundreds of times in bed. What is he doing up there on that stage? And that is where that man's cover was blown. Was there something wrong with me? Was there something wrong in our church that that was going on for all those years and none of us could discern it? That grieves me. I don't have a good answer to that question. But those things have been named among us. What will we do about it? Ministers, will we preach the whole word? Or will we neglect a major theme in Proverbs, that of moral purity? You can't read through Proverbs, but coming up with it six or eight times, very graphic, very... And I don't think, I think we need to be discreet, especially in a, a, a mixed audience with young children. But we need to teach that. Fathers, will we teach our sons what it means not to defraud your sister or any girl for that matter, not just their sons, but older men, by inappropriate touching, familiarity? Will we teach the beauty of wholesome relationships that our daughters can go to the marriage altar pure and undefiled. What's my time frame? You can't talk. No. <laughs> <laughs> you got I'm nearly done here. Some of you know Tim Zook. I was at Tim's daughter's Becky's wedding some years ago. She married a Fred Friesen from Alberta. We were up in International Falls in a rented church for that wedding. I didn't know anything about this till Tim sp spoke it over the pulpit because there were saved and unsaved people in that audience that they worked for as carpenters and so forth. And Tim talked about their, his son-in-law-to-be son and his daughter had decided they're not even going to kiss until their wedding day. He said, after I pronounce them man and wife, they're going to be finding some place between when we go out to greet them and enjoying their first kiss. Something thrilled me to hear that. Such a standard was not even held up when I was dating. But I thrilled to hear that. When he pronounced them man and wife, they almost ran back the aisle. I don't blame them. They had, a, they had before chosen to 
they found a quiet spot where they were going to go and enjoy their first kiss before they came back out and, and met the, the people, all the, the attendees there. Well, Becky had been working with a special needs girl, you know, uh, some very specialized wheelchair. This girl was nine or 12 years old and she was really twisted and contorted and a, a, a special needs child. And the grandmother brought her to see Becky, her caregiver, get married. But she had told Becky that if, if she gets restless, we'll take her out. And so they, partway through the service, they exited it and they found a spot, a quiet spot back in the library. And I don't know if any of you know where this is going or not. <laughs> but they were back there in quietness and all of a sudden the door burst open and here Fred and Becky come in and they were getting ready to enjoy their first kiss and this lady spoke up and said, you're not alone in here. <laughs> Praise God, there are young people who are willing to keep themselves pure and go maybe the extra or fourth mile to keep themselves pure and let that testimony. I glorify God that that kind of thing happened. My oldest granddaughter was married March 11th. She married her bishop's son, Josh, Joshua Dean. And I asked him right after they started dating, I said, can I just ask you, I'm pretty fairly close to Lorraine, I said, I'm, I'm really curious what you've chosen for your courtship standards. And she says, Grandpa, we decided we're just not, we're not even going to hold hands to our wedding day. I said, wow. But I commend you. You know what it does to an old grandpa when he sees his first granddaughter come to marry daughter and she's kept herself pure and no one has ever defiled her? That's as God meant it to be. And fathers, we should be teaching our sons and we should be teaching each other. There is nothing manly about showing what, a, what persuasive powers you have or carnal desires you have. We ought to hold what God's hold precious that our children come to that altar pure and undefiled and can enjoy the marriage bed as God intended it to be enjoyed. You might say, well, we don't talk about those things. And how do we apply these biblical principles. Many fathers and mothers will not talk about them. I had meetings this spring in another place. I'll let the place remain unnamed. But a six or eight or of their young people, older young people, men had been involved with pornography. Many of them had gotten victory over it. I preached the message Saturday night that every one of you will know how to possess his vessel in honor and sanctification before the Lord. I still see that one young man. I think he was in his mid-30s. He had just married a lovely wife. But for 10 or 12 years, he'd walked away from God. He'd been involved in stuff he should have been involved in. He testified Sunday night, the tears running down his face. He said, I'm so, so grateful for God's forgiveness, for his acceptance, and for the church receiving me. When he came back the uh, Saturday night after the message, he said, Bob, I really wish I had heard that message when I was nine years old. I think it may have kept me from a lot of years of darkness. And more than one person has said, I wish I heard that when I was much younger. The ministers, what will we do about that? One of the first days in January this year, 
We're a small church, six families. One of our young men has begun serving a seven-year prison sentence for molesting his sister when he was into his 16th year, and she was three or four years, five years younger than him. This is part of her family, which has been taken care of. It's being done, but I look back at both their homes were sort of dysfunctional homes. Purity was not taught in the home. It came out that the mother was involved in reading. I mean, she, they went to evangel, even evangelical free church before they came to our church. But she read racy romance novels and she thought she kept them hidden. But this man from our church, Jason, had seen several of these books and read them that she had. If parents are living that kind of duplicity, they will never lead their children into moral purity. Parents, mothers, your, your daughter's reading materials, fellows reading materials, what you look at in that smartphone or whatever it is. I'd like to keep in mind that Jesus Christ one day is looking forward to something that's very, very precious to him. It's often said as a benediction. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you what? Faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. I tell you to see Josh and Lorraine walk up the aisle, know they kept themselves pure, filled this old man's heart with joy. Do you think it's any less for the Son of God to welcome his bride home? And he wants us to he wants his bride pure and holy. And we ought to do what we can do to keep it that way, to make it that way. I preached that message three times now and asking for a lot of prayer doing it because there are some people who say, we don't talk about those things. Well, brother, we must. We must do it discreetly. We must do it in a way that doesn't stir up desires. But it's out there. And I hope we can all have a holy vision and a goal in our mind that, that these things, if we look at back at 10 years from now, that these things are not one time more named among us as become the saints. Because when it is, it, it brings a, a besmirching to the Lord Jesus Christ's name. In closing, may we remind ourselves that the Bible teachings we are applying, good, that is as it ought to be. But what about the ones that we need to maybe make a more diligent application of? Will we be doers of the word and not just hearers? Jesus said, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. God bless you.